0: And the Lord be with you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together. Make Christ come alive in our hearts and help us see you in each other and in our own lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, last week we talked about that the main point that the writers are trying to make is the continuity between Judaism and Christianity. And that Jesus himself cannot be understood as anything other than a first century jew as we come to this next chapter there are a few uh passages that they talk about from from the day tuesday that problematize some of that analysis um there's it is in the this section of mark where we have a lot of talk about the destruction of the temple um, and if Jesus is a temple-centric Jew, how do we make sense of the focus of the destruction of the temple that we find in this chapter of Mark? So it's one of the things we're going to address today. Um, Jesus goes back to the temple on Tuesday. Uh, it is, um, when he goes back, he stands in the court of the Gentiles and starts to have conversations with people who come up and challenge him. And who is it that comes up and challenges him? It's the leaders of the Jewish people at the time. It's the people who ran the temple, right? So you have the scribes, you have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees, you have elders, people who would have had power in the temple. So the point that was made last week by Kassan and Borg was that Jesus' conflict was with the leadership of the temple, that Jesus doesn't have any problem with Judaism, that Jesus is nothing other than a temple-centric, first-century Jew, not that he shouldn't be understood in any other context. And this attack by these leaders of the Jews makes sense of that. It, It really supports that view. You don't have regular people coming up and threatening to stone Jesus. If Jesus was condemning Judaism as a whole, you would expect crowds of Jews to come up and go, What are you saying? How can you say these things? How dare you? There are moments in the Bible, in the Gospels, where Jesus tends to anger crowds. For the most part, the crowds come and listen. And it is not the crowds of the Jewish people who are challenging Jesus here. It is the leadership. Which lends itself to the interpretation of Jesus' conflict as not being with Judaism as a whole, but with the Jewish leadership. I, I've kind of jumped. Does anybody have any questions about this chapter? Did anybody, does anybody has has read this chapter? Read it this week? Maybe read it. Anything that anybody marked off? Any questions anybody has about that or the book so far? I want to give everybody a chance to. Anybody have anything that they're. That's bothering them about these about this or that that that's confusing them or anything like that okay so Jesus has a series of encounters and the first encounter he has is with a group of Pharisees who question his authority basically they're saying on what authority are you saying and doing these things so people would at the time have a kind of pedigree if they were going to be a religious leader If you were a, when you were a kid, you would learn the first five books of the Torah. You'd learn some of of the way your rabbi interpreted the Torah. And the best of the best got to go on and learn at the rabbi's feet for a few more years. And the best of the best of those might go on to become rabbis themselves. Jesus is speaking with religious authority as if he has the authority to condemn the temple, right? Or the authority to challenge the Pharisees. Where do you get the power or the authority to say and do these things? And Jesus responds to them. He goes, I'm going to ask you a question first. Before I answer your question, you answer me a question. Where did John the Baptist's authority come from? And he's put them in a pickle. Because people liked John the Baptist. He was popular among regular people. But they had had conflict with John the Baptist his whole life. If they had said, well, John the Baptist's authority came from heaven. He was a prophet and he had been chosen by God. Then, he, then Jesus would say, well, why didn't you listen to him? Why didn't you all gather around him and support him? Why would you let him get killed? If they say, well, he, just, he didn't have any authority. He was just doing his own thing. He was basically a crazy guy in the desert. The people are going to get angry. And say, they go, we don't know where John the Baptist's authority came from. And Jesus says, then I'm not going to tell you where mine comes from. A lot of what we're going to see in this section, and this is kind of, um, they belabor some points in the book here. A lot of what they, the conclusions they come to all all, all, over and over again is Jesus doesn't really say anything here. He's just deliberately confusing the people who are challenging him. And by the way, that's true most of what Jesus does in this section is just meant to confound the people who are challenging him. They're looking for grounds to arrest him. They want him to say or do something which will get him arrested, preferably by Roman authorities, but maybe by temple authorities too. And if they can't get him arrested, they want him to say something that's going to make the crowd turn against them, right? They want the people to see Jesus as the enemy instead of themselves. So everything Jesus does is about getting out of these verbal traps that these people are setting for him. He's not going to make their job easy on them. He is he is being clever in the strictest sense of the word. So when Jesus says these things, his real... Uh, when he talks about the authority of John the Baptist and where his authority comes from, and he says, well, I'm not going to tell you if you can't tell me where, where um, John's came from. It's a way to get out of the problem. So he basically gets away with saying nothing, and he doesn't say anything that gets him in trouble. And additionally, people then hear what, what they want to hear, which is always kind of uh, a good way to, to get away with stuff. And that's what Jesus is. Jesus is making sure he can stay in the temple doing what he's doing, preaching what he wants to preach. So then he goes on to tell the t- the, a parable. Which is a parable. I actually uh, re- uh, memorized these chapters of Mark for Lent about three years ago. And I can't recite them now, but by the end I could recite the entire section. So in the, but I do, do know the story. So this is the parable of the vineyard. Everybody know this story? It was in the book. So there's a vineyard, and there's a landowner, and he owns a vineyard. And he rents the vineyard to some tenants, tenant farmers. He goes, you take care of my land for me. And I'm going to come back, and I want a percentage of what the land produces. So you do the work. It's my land. I get part of the, part of the fruits of the labor. And he waits a little while, and he goes, oh, you know, I need to get, I need to get my, uh, my, my pay from those tenant farmers. And he starts sending servants. And the servants come, and the tenants beat them, they, you know, and they send them away one after another. So every time the landowner sends someone, they are beaten and sent away. And the landowner does something that would, in some ways, seem so strange, right? He says, Excuse me. he says, I'm going to send my son, because if they beat my servants, certainly they'll listen to my son, which makes no sense. If you, if these, if you have a group of, of brigands who keep beating your servants, you'd think the last thing you would do is send your son to talk to these people. But that's what he does. And when they see the son coming, they say to themselves, the landowner must be dead. That's why we're not seeing him. This is his son. And it's the only son we think he has. If we kill him, there's no one to claim the land. And we just get to keep keep the land ourselves. So they kill the son. And Jesus says, what do you think the landowner is going to do to those tenant farmers? He's going to kill them, imprison them, and give the land to someone else. The way this parable has traditionally been understood by most Christians, for most of Christian history, is that the land is essentially the kingdom of God, or the authority to speak on God's behalf. The tenants are the Jews. The servants are the prophets, and then the Son is Jesus Christ. And that when that the Jews, the Jewish people, killed Jesus, and that because of that, they've lost their status as the people of God, and that that authority, the kingdom of God, is going to be given to other people who are the Gentiles. That's how most Christians for most of history have understood this parable. Chris and Borg argue that that's the wrong way to understand it and I think it's the wrong way to understand it too for them the land is Israel it is the kingdom of Israel the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of God are either the same thing or interconnected through most of scripture when in the Old Testament, when we hear about the kingdom of God, he's talking about Israel, a political entity, a country where God will eventually rule the world from. So either Israel or an Israelite empire that spans the entire earth with God at the head, that's what the kingdom of God is. And Krasan and Borger are arguing that's what it is here too. The land is Israel. The tenant, the, the, the servants are the prophets. But the tenant farmers are not Israel as a whole because Israel is the land. The tenant farmers are the leadership at the temple. The priests, the Pharisees, the elders, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the people who are running Jewish society. Those are the people who are the tenant farmers that kill the prophets and will ultimately kill Jesus himself. And that the kingdom of Israel is, is going to be taken away from those people and given to people that deserve it. That's what they argue this parable is about, and I personally think that that's the right interpretation. Any qu- so I want to stop. Any th- comments, questions, thoughts about that? Um, there's too much in scri- in scripture that showed jesus to be a first century jewish person There's too much of what he says and does that's just in line with what other there's nothing that really this is This is something hard to, to for christians to accept There's nothing that jesus teaches That is not found either in the old testament Or In rabbinical writings of the time Jesus Innovates Nothing Nothing there is no innovation in Jesus' teachings. Jesus is saying things that he makes the point last week that a lot of what Jesus says is in line with the prophets said. That's right. Everything nothing Jesus says is that is innovative. What Jesus was really good at is picking out what was most important, what was most relevant to people's actual lives in scripture and in rabbinical writings. That's what he was good at was uh, as a thinker. You know, we, in life there are people who are intellectuals and what they're really good at is innovating, coming up with new ideas. And there's other intellectuals who are really good at taking the ideas that are out there and finding the ones that really matter. And both those people play important roles in the intellectual history of mankind, right? And there's some people who get a, get attributed for innovating when they're really, like, quoting someone else. That happens all the time in history, right? There's a lot of people who are famous for coming up with an idea and other people go, well, they didn't really come up with that idea, This other person came up with the idea. They were just quoting them. That's what Jesus doesn't, isn't, isn't that innovative. There's nothing he's saying that's not found in scripture or rabbinical writings. There's nothing in his actions that speak to anything him being other than the first century Jew. And so I do not think that Jesus as a first century Jew is going around, and by the way, gathering crowds and getting followers from within the Jewish people. At this point, there are almost no Gentile followers of Jesus. At this point, what we call Christianity, which was at the time called the People of the Way, or the Nazarene Movement, is is a Jewish movement. These are Jews. There's not such thing as Christians. We're going to talk about that more in a second when when that starts to, the distinction starts. Jesus is a Jew. His disciples are Jews. His followers are Jews. His movement is Jewish. And I don't see that Jesus could have created a Jewish movement by going, all the Jews are gone. We're just going to be replaced. This doesn't make any sense. And... The parables, to me, make more sense when you think of the villains as the, the leadership of the Jewish people. So I just think you have two competing theories as to un- how to understand these parables and Jesus' conflict. One theory, the prevailing theory for most Christians, is that Jesus' conflict is with Judaism. The other theory is that Jesus' conflict is with the leadership of the Jews at the time. A lot of people had conflicts with the, leaderships, the leadership of the Jews at the time. A lot of them were, they were collaborating with Rome. There was a lot of reasons not to like them. A lot of people didn't. And Jesus gets a lot of regular people who listen to him. And I think that's why. Any other questions? Comments? Thoughts? Yep. So, right after this, An illustration of why people had a conflict with the Jewish leadership takes place, because now Jesus asked about paying taxes to Caesar. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This is another trap to get Jesus either in trouble or arrested. If Jesus tells people not to pay taxes to Caesar, he can be arrested by the Romans. The Romans' main reason why they cared about Israel or cared about any country in the East was one thing and one thing only. They wanted your money. They wanted their taxes. Part of the reason the, Jewish, the Roman Empire eventually falls is because the Romans taxed the garbage out of everybody in the East to pay for wars in the West. They overtaxed people in Persia. See, the Persian, the Persian Empire, which kind of precedes the Alexandrian and the and the Roman Empire, was really good at not overtaxing people. They knew that you had that you had to let prosperity take place. The Persians are the ones who return. Think about Israel is exiled by the Babylonians. Persia takes over and says, You're going back home. We're going to send you back to Israel. Why? Because they found out that the best way to just rule best was to rule least. You take care of yourselves, you pay us money, we'll defend you from other large empires, and we're good. Just give us a little bit of your cash, just pay us tribute, we'll take care of your defense, and, and we're good. The Romans operated that way too at first, but as their wars went on and on, they needed more and more money, they... Taxed people more and more, and especially people in the east. The people in Israel and Syria that were ruled by Rome hated the tax tax system in Rome. They hated it. It also um, uh, was a corrupt system because what happened is they, the Romans would take people. And they go, "You're a tax collector. You're a tax collector. Your job's to collect taxes for us. You collect this much tax, and whatever extra you can get, you get to keep." And by the way, you have the authority of Rome. If you have any problems with people, we'll send troops to, to support you. You think that was uh, corrupted? You think that was abused? Oh, yeah. The individual tax collector was hated because most t- tax collectors would just just, just u- abuse that system. They would take, take what Rome was requiring, which was already too much, and they would ask for more and more and more to line their own pockets. That's why when John the Baptist, early on in Matthew, is chal- talks to tax collectors. He says tax collectors don't take more than what you're supposed to. He's telling them don't don't be one of those guys, man. That's just robbing people because you have the author- you have the power to do it. So people hated the tax system in Rome. More than that, it re- reminded Jews over and over again that they were not free. Right? Every time they had to pay their taxes, every time they had to look at a Roman coin. They had to see the face of the person who was oppressing them. So the, the um, temple authorities are asking Jesus about paying taxes because if he tells people not to pay their taxes, he can be arrested by Rome. And then he's no longer their problem anymore. It's all a secular matter. They don't have to do anything. They can get rid of him real nice and easy. Also remember what's happening right now. This is Passover, right? Passover is when the Jewish people are remembering their freedom from Egypt. Right? They're remembering how they were freed from a, from oppression. And there's thousands and thousands. The city swells as pilgrims come in remembering when they were made free from from the Jews. The Romans were nervous during these these periods of time because the threat of rebellion was real. You can imagine if you're Rome and you're trying to rule over Israel, Rome's main job is to keep Israel peaceful, to not have there be rebellion because what they care about, the only reason they care about Israel is the money. And if you have insurrection, you're not collecting taxes. If you're not collecting taxes, you're not getting your money. They don't want the Israelites rebelling. And to have an itinerant preacher in the middle of the temple, the sign of where God is going to rule the world from, the place from which God is supposed to rule the world, and proclaiming, don't pay your taxes to Caesar, that's, that's all the excuse the Romans need. But if Jesus tells people to pay their taxes, he's going to tick a lot of people off. The regular people will turn against him. Right? So everybody knows what he says, right? Bring me a Roman coin whose face is on it. The emperor's, Caesar's. Then give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. Now, Americans have, for the longest time, interpreted this text to be a sign of separation of church and state. That there's something you owe to the state, and something you owe to God, and you keep those two things separate. That is not what's going on. This is not, the concept of separation of church and state is not invented by Jesus Christ in 33 AD. As much as we probably wish it were, it was not. That is not what's going on. No religious person, no Christian understood Jesus to be saying this. No Jew understood Jesus to be saying this for the longest time and forever in a day. That is not what's going on. As much as it would be nice to believe that that was Jesus' intention, it's not. The idea of a separate political and religious sphere doesn't exist. It wouldn't have even conceived of the reality. Jesus doesn't even think in those terms. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, it, Jesus definitely believe I think, definitely believes that the kingdom of God is going to be instituted by God's power and that it is a sin to take up arms and try to bring the kingdom of God yourself. Jesus believes that. But the reality that God is going to come in and bring is a political reality. It is the world transformed. It is the world ruled by an empire which is ruled by God. And so is a righteous empire. That's the the reality that Jesus is expecting when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. It is a religious and a political reality at the same time. No, what Jesus is doing here is giving another non-answer. He's saying nothing in the most amazing way possible. Because what you owe to Caesar may be nothing. Or it may be everything. What do you owe to Caesar? He never answers that question. What do you owe to God? He never answers that question. It is a non-answer of the the highest order and leaves everybody hearing whatever it is they want to hear. If you're a Roman and you hear that, you go, oh yeah. Well, see, he's not telling people not to pay their taxes. He just told people to pay their taxes. If you're a Jewish person and you hear those same words, you go, oh, he's telling us we don't owe anything. He's telling us we don't have to pay our taxes. He's saying that the taxes are wrong. Because what you owe owe to Caesar may be nothing. You hear whatever you want to hear. It's a Rorschach test. It's ink blot. You see in Jesus' words here whatever you want to see. And that's exactly the intention. They come in, try to trap him, he gets out. He's like an escape artist. He's Harry Houdini, just with words. And that's what this is about. They, they end that section like basically Jesus is beautifully saying nothing, and that's exactly right. There's just no, there's nothing, there is everything to hold on to and nothing to hold on to. The next section is one I have a little quibble with them about. When they talk about the parable of the woman and the husbands. So the Sadducees come up to Jesus, and they say, basically, you believe in the resurrection of the dead, is that right? Yes, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Jesus essentially says, he goes, well, there was a woman, and she has had seven husbands, and every one of the husbands died. Whose wife is she in the resurrection? Now, in Jewish society, if a woman died, if a woman's husband died, the husband's brother would marry the woman so that sh- so that the, hus- the guy who died had legal heirs. You see this in the book of Ruth. I mean, the book of Ruth is all about this. If you're a female and your husband dies, you have no support system. You have no hope. So to make sure that you're taken care of, the brother, make sure you have children. Those children are legally, literally the children of the husband who died. And then those children gained the, the husband's inheritance. That's the practice they're talking about. So everyone, so this woman, who was obviously had a rough life, every time she got married, the husband died. In the end, whose husband was she? The Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees are the priestly class of the temple. These are the people who are really running things in the temple. These are the people who are doing the daily operations. They are also the aristocrats of Jewish society, and they were the biggest collaborators with Rome. Their only concern, their primary concern for them, all that mattered when it came to religion, is the temple. If we do what we're supposed to do in the temple right, God is happy. God doesn't care about political realities outside the temple. doesn't care that much what you do in your home. What he cares about is that we do things right in the temple. Everything exactly right. This is what the Sadducees are concerned with. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. They did not believe in the prophets. They did not believe in the wisdom writings as the word of God. The only books they have are those first five books of Moses. And they are the most extremely temple-centric uh, Group of Jews. The most temple-centric sect is the Sadducees. Guess what happens to the Sadducees when the temple's gone? They're gone. They disappear, because without the temple, the Sadducee sect can't continue to exist. The Pharisees and the Jesus movement live on. Sadducees don't, because everything was about the temple. So, by the way, how do you think they felt about Jesus attacking the authority of those who run the temple? Not these are probably the people. Nobody probably hated Jesus more as a group or had more reason to hate him, anyways, than the Sadducees. Okay. So they're challenging Jesus' belief in the resurrection of the dead. Now, the Pharisees also would have believed in resurrection of the dead. Many Jews did. They're challenging the idea that the resurrection of the dead is true, that there's anything like an afterlife. Because there is no afterlife in the first five books of the Bible. No talk of an afterlife. No sign of one. It just does, it's, there's no theology of, of an afterlife in the first five books of the Bible. If you do bad, bad things happen to you. If you do good, good things happen to you. God's justice is meted out in this world, and beyond this world, there is nothing. You, what matters is the survival of the people. You live on, you live on in your children, your grandchildren, your grandchildren's grandchildren, and which lends itself to why the Sadducees wanted to make make peace with Rome, because their other main concern was that Israel survives, that the Jews don't die off. That's where their afterlife is found. So Jesus... Goes on to expound what life is like after the resurrection. And he says, We live as angels. There is no marrying. And he goes, By the way, you think that the res- that there is no mention of the of, of an afterlife in the first five books of Moses? You're wrong. God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says those words. And God is the God of the God is God of the living and not the dead. So he's arguing to the Sadducees that there is a sign that the, of resurrection of the dead, even in the five books of, the, of Moses as that, they, that they believe in. So he doesn't refer to the books they don't accept. He's trying to go within their own, their own beliefs and prove that they're wrong. Borg and Cresson go a long way to try to say, look, it sounds here like Jesus talked about heaven, and that's not possible because Jews only believed in resurrection of the dead. And so this is a confusing section and we don't fully understand what it means. And by the way, what we think is Jesus is deliberately being confusing again. He's doing the same thing he did with the taxes and the same thing he did with the authority of John the Baptist. He's, deliberately, he's doing a verbal game to keep from having to answer the question. I don't believe in this case they're right. I think that they're making a lot of assumptions about what first century Jews believed about, about an afterlife that they don't really have access to. We don't know how, how Uh, variegated beliefs about the afterlife might have been in first century Judaism. Do we know that Judaism was a very diverse religion? See, this is one of the biggest things that happens when you discover the Dead Sea Scrolls. A lot of the stuff is that people thought that there were these certain sections of Jews and they all believed basically the same thing, but archaeological evidence has shown us that first century Judaism is a very diverse, very living religion with a lot of people believing a lot of different things and they argue about this stuff all the time. I'm not sure that Croissant and Borg are right that Jesus couldn't possibly believe in, for instance, a disembodied soul that went to heaven. I don't know what Jesus believed fully about the afterlife. I don't think anybody did. So I think it may be that Jesus actually is trying to get, they're saying Jesus can't possibly try to be teaching us about what the afterlife is like because this doesn't look like resurrection of the dead and that's all Jesus could believe in. I disagree with them. So in this section, I don't think that they that they got it right. I think Jesus is trying to give it a glimpse. He's trying to tell the sadducees don't th- it's all so much more than you think it is, man. You think you've got it all figured out, you've got it all in a box, and it's all so much bigger than you think it is you ca- uh, there is a, a sense in a lot of these things that Jesus like. Um, kind of godfather in this. Like, you come with me with a question like this? What kind of person would you come to me with a question like this? You know, to even, that you aren't, literally aren't worth my time. Even the non-answers to some degree are an example. And we're going to, we're going to talk about this a little more in, the se- in a second. Um, that Jesus is operating on such a higher level than them about what it all means, the scriptures, that they don't even have the right, see, they started this section right, by what authority do you do these things? Everything he does, to some degree, ch- turns that question around and challenges their authority to even ask him questions in the in the first place. By giving the non-answers, by leaving them dumbfounded, by essentially just saying refusing to answer their questions, he's leaving them them in a place where they don't look like they have much authority to affect him at all. I mean, no internet trolls. You know what an internet troll is? It's when so, I, I, I when some of it, people get on, on on Facebook and on Instagram and stuff, people are much more willing to be terrible people really, to other people because of the kind of everything's filtered. so people will pile on just for the fun of hurting someone. I've seen this recently just recently with a young lady. These, she, they, these people just brutalized her for really no other reason than it was fun to brutalize her on the internet. That's what these people are they're trolling and people always say the bet the worst thing you can do is to respond to a troll on the internet by trolling more you feed a troll more come so the best thing to do is to just ignore them or to get them trapped by their own game let their own words hurt them that's what jesus is basically doing here he's having their own words trap them the only people who are who are talking is is them and they're essentially talking to themselves and it's brilliant Moving on. There's a lot of stuff in this section, isn't there? Last, we had three things to talk about. And they were, you know, now we have, there's like ten. Um, the, he goes on. Somebody comes up to him. Someone has been, one of these teachers of the law, one of these Jewish authorities has been impressed by what Jesus has done here. They may, Maybe they came, maybe he came to challenge Jesus like everyone else, thinking that Jesus was just some, you know, troublemaker, Maybe he respected Jesus and was really interested in finding out what he had to say. We don't know anything about him. What we do know is that this, while everybody else is trying to come up and they're trolling, right? Everybody else is just trying to make, like, attack Jesus. This person comes up with an honest question. He's interested and he wants to know what Jesus has to say. And he says, what are the two greatest commandments? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and love your neighbor as yourself on these two words all the law and the prophets. That if you want to get it all down, you want to know what to do, you want to know how to live, live that way. And the teacher of the law is impressed. And he says, and he responds, expounding, Yeah, that's exactly right. To do that, that's 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 all that really matters. And Jesus looks at him and says, You're not far from the kingdom of God. Mm, almost no Jew Jewish person with any kind of training would have denied what Jesus just said. Think about it. Jesus just essentially asked, what what does it mean to love, what does it mean to live like God wants us to live? Jesus doesn't say, believe in me that I'm the Son of God and then you're saved. Jesus doesn't say, join my movement, join this, this religion I'm starting, and then you'll be saved. Jesus doesn't say anything. What he says is something that most Jews would have accepted, something you find in Leviticus, something that other rabbis had said over and over again. You love God, you love other people. That's what you've got to do. That's what matters. Simple. I mean, there's people who not, so many people who just had decent hearts can accept those things, right? And that's what it boils down to. This also shows that the leadership, even the people Jesus had conflict with, were not just, these are not, you know, comic book supervillains who are like, we're going to get Jesus now. These are human beings, right? A lot of them probably thought they were doing the right thing. Most of them probably thought they were doing the right thing. We see this in John the um, the the head priest says it's better for one man to die than for an entire nation to die. You're a, you're you're a, you're a temple a temple leader, and you know you know in your heart there is no way that if the Jewish people rebel that they are going to survive an encounter with Rome. You know it as surely as the sun rises that you that Rome. You know, I, I once saw a report that. One of the problems you have in in, uh, countries that are seeking nuclear weapons that other countries are worried about is that regular people in those countries have no idea what nuclear weapons actually do. They just think of them as big bombs. They do not understand that the weapons that their governments are pursuing can literally destroy the world. That they kill millions and millions of people if they're dropped. And so... In the United States, of course, most every person who has any kind of education understands the weight of nuclear weapons and so understands the weight of the political realities that surround it. But in a lot of countries, they don't. Countries whose governments are pursuing nuclear weapons, but probably 90% of the people in that country have no idea what they really do. Think about that. See how that changes a political calculation for the leadership compared to uh, in the United States where we're like, hey, man, (laughs) this is a dangerous thing. It's the same thing in Israel at the time. The common person does not fully understand just how powerful Rome is. Their life is confined to a few blocks, what would be a few blocks today, right? They never leave their hometown. And they're brought up their whole life being taught probably by a lot of rabbis that God is, is in control and that if the, if the Israelite people want to rise up, God is going to protect them and make sure that they win, that Rome can't stand against the power of God. But you're a temple leader, And you know that that's actually probably not true. You know enough about Israel's history to know that there's plenty of times God has let Israel be taken, be destroyed. That's happened many times, and there's no reason to think it can't happen again. And you know that Rome is the most powerful empire in the world, and that Israel's not going to survive an encounter with Rome. And you're the leadership, and those people's lives are on your shoulders. And you know that this guy, in a second, can bring roam down to to destroy the temple, destroy your culture, destroy your faith, and kill every person you know. And that's on you every single day. And you're the one who has to make those decisions. And that's the reality of what those temple leaders are facing every day. Were they good people? Were they bad people? They're probably good and bad, bad in them all the way around. They were people. They were human beings. A lot of them were privileged. They almost all were privileged. And that makes them more prone to corruption. They didn't probably make the right decisions as leaders, but when it comes to what they're doing in and against Jesus, they're in a, in a tough spot, and it's important to remember that these are human beings. Some of them probably doing the best they could, and sometimes people doing the best they can do terrible things, and so this guy comes up, and he has this conversation with Jesus, and Jesus looks right at him and says, you're not far from the kingdom of God which indicates, which is just an affirmation that what we're dealing with on both sides, and it's important to remember this, is humans. Demonizing the people who crucified Jesus, demonizing them, believing them to be monsters or evil or how could they do that or I would never do that, is to completely miss the point. Because good people trying to do the best they can can crucify Jesus Christ. That's the truth. Um, Jesus goes on and asks himself a question. He says, he, says, he asks the disciples ostensibly, but he's really asking himself the question. In the psal- there's a psalm where, which says, the Lord said to my Lord, you're my footstool. And Jesus takes this as a messianic passage, And he says, how can, if David is called Lord, then who is, essentially who's being taught, what does it mean to say, the Lord said to my Lord? Well, in the, in the psalm, the psalm is a royal psalm. It's a psalm that would have happened, would have been used at a coronation probably of a king. When you were, when you were crowned king of Israel, you were literally adopted as God's son. That's what you were understood to be. You were God's emissary on earth, and you were God's son by adoption. David call, God calls David my son, calls Solomon my son. Every king would have been called—that's what this psalm is really about originally. It's about God, who is the Lord, Yahweh, s- speaking to the Lord in terms of a political Lord, the person who is his son. That's what that psalm is originally about. But what Jesus—and this is what Cresson and um, um, Borg argue— what Jesus is, is, is saying with this psalm here, according to them, is that the Messiah is greater than just another David. That y'all have been looking for a political leader who does the things a political leader does. Y'all have been looking for a military leader who's going to start an uprising and create an empire with Israel at its center. The Messiah is greater than that. I'm going to bring about, this is Jesus' words, I'm going to bring about the kingdom of God and I'm not going to have to shed a single drop of blood except for my own. They're arguing that Jesus is, is. here's the thing. How, how do I say this? Judas' sin is not that Judas didn't believe Jesus to be the Messiah. Judas' sin is that he thought that he could force the Messiah to be what he wants him to be. That if he thinks that if Jesus is cornered and put on trial, that Jesus is going to call for a military uprising. Jesus' disciples want him, not all of them, but a lot of them want him to start an insurrection, a revolution. They want him to be a military Messiah because that's what most people had waited for for the longest time. Jesus' main conviction is that the Messiah is not going to rule by replacing Rome. The Messiah is not going to rule by starting a new revolution. It's not going to be another king, another Maccabean, another Hasmonean. I'm not, he, that, that his job is not to start a revolution. His job is to pray and be obedient to God and that God is going to take care of the rest. That by being the person God wants him to be, that he's going to fulfill prophecy and God's going to come and take care of the political realities of the earth. That if he takes up, this is the temptation of Satan in the desert. All the kingdoms of the world are mine. Bow down and worship me and they will become yours. What that that temptation is is the temptation Jesus has faced with his whole life, which is to take up military and political arms to institute God's kingdom. A shortcut to what it means means to be Messiah. Instead, Jesus accepts self-sacrifice, love, peace, o- obedience to God. Now, I don't deny. I do not. I do not. I don't think you can deny that Jesus expects a political reality. Jesus expects God to come in and establish a kingdom, a kingdom, an empire, a a, a political world. But it's God that's going to do it by God's power. And it's trusting in the power of God to change the world that the world actually has changed. I'm not going to be another David. Because if if I'm another David, I'll make the same mistakes David made. I'm not going to be another Solomon. I'm not going to be this political king and this political military ruler to institute God's kingdom. God is going to do that. I'm going to follow the call of God, I'm going to be obedient to God, and then God is going to do that by God's power. It's an act of faith. Think about in Luke. This is something I think Jesus struggles with his whole life. Constantly Jesus being confronted with the political reality of what people wanted the Messiah to be. To be a king. To be a military leader. That's what people were expecting. It's what they'd always believed it was going to be. Even in Luke... The, the the disciples have swords right they're ready someone cuts off the ear of one of the of one of the guards because they're ready for a military uprising but that's not what Jesus is about so when Jesus mentions this psalm the lord said to my lord what he's saying is messiah is greater than what you think the messiah is i'm not just another king he then goes on to say that the scribes the people who who are around him, I guess, at this point, we don't know why he picks the scribes out now, do all these terrible uh, business practices, um, basically steal from widows. This is, again, another indictment of the leadership of Jerusalem. These people are corrupt, is what he's saying. This is a corrupt system with corrupt people. and needs to be taken down, and it's going to be taken down. It's going to be taken down. Rome's going to be taken down. God's going to come and take it down. God's going to replace these awful corrupt leaders it's going to happen, and it's going to happen because I'm obedient to God. And then we have Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple and what we call the little apocalypse. So almost all thinkers, biblical scholars, believe that this section of Mark is something that's in, that is written later. After Jesus dies, Israel rises up about 30 years later. Everything the temple leaders were afraid of happens. Israel rises up. There's a revolution. And it goes on for about four years. There's a war. Rome, they never really stood a chance. They, Rome in 70 AD, comes, raises Jerusalem, destroys all the temple except for one wall, and sacrifices, makes sacrifices to Caesar right in the middle of the temple. And there's references to this all throughout this section of Mark. Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, the raising of himself up. Crisan and and Borg talk about the difficulty that, that Christians were caught in in the middle of the revolution. They say that Christians were nonviolent by their very nature because Jesus had had decried taking up military arms. The Christians operated the same way. These, again, wouldn't be called Christians at the time. They're just the Jesus movement of the Jews. So the Jesus-following Jews can't take up arms and join the revolution. Neither can they side with Rome because Jesus' message is decidedly political. Jesus spends his whole life preaching against Rome and the leadership in, in Jerusalem. So there is a political aspect to what Jesus... So they can't collaborate with Rome... They can't take up arm with their brothers, and they wind up hated by both sides. And and, and both sides are suspicious of them. Now, there is some evidence that there may have been something else going on, that Christians had already, while they were still temple-centric Jews, Jesus' followers had de-emphasized the temple, and Jesus had become more important. I talked about this last week, that Jesus had already started to replace the temple as the center of their faith. And if that's true, they weren't worried as much about the, the threat to Jerusalem. And most Christians went to some other towns. Christians, Jesus following Jews, went to other towns to escape the revolution altogether. They tried to stay out of it. This is when Christianity and Judaism start to split. Because the people who follow Jesus don't join the revolution. So the other Jews start to look at them suspiciously, start to... I mean, you know, they didn't side with their brothers in the war. What are you going to do? So that that's this is where we start to have a this is where we really start to have a distinction between Judaism and Christianity, and the talk of the dest- destruction of the temple is a reflection on what's going on when Mark is written. Mark, the Gospel of Mark is probably written around 70 A.D. right after the temple is destroyed. Because the temple was still important to the Jews who followed Jesus because it was important to all Jews. And so the the Christians, the people who followed Jesus, start struggling with the question, what does this mean? This is a really big deal when the temple is destroyed. People have been waiting for God to come and change the world to make a kingdom. If there was ever a time to do it, it's certainly when the temple is destroyed, right? This is why the Gospels are written, y'all. The Gospels are written when they're written because the temple is destroyed and nothing happened. The world didn't change. God didn't come down and change everything. And everybody's confused. And that's why the Gospels are written down to explain to the Jews who believe in Jesus what this means for them. To shift the focus even more away from the temple to Jesus himself, because now you have the Gospels. And in the Gospels, you encounter Jesus. And in, the go- in Jesus, you've ca- you, you encounter God. Where is God in all this? God is in Jesus Christ. This is where this idea starts to develop. And from that point on, that's when Judaism and Christianity start to distinguish themselves. mean, have any idea when the Jews canonized their scripture? Let me know. 90 A.D. Not, that blew my mind when I learned that. The Jews don't canonize their scripture until 90 A.D., it's mind-blowing. Like you think, you reading, think about what that means too while you're reading the Gospels. When the Gospels talk about the Scriptures, when Jesus talks about the Scriptures, we don't fully know what he means. We don't know which Scriptures Jesus accepted and didn't accept because different groups of Jews accepted and didn't accept different parts of Scripture because there was no canon. There was no Jewish canon until 90 A.D. Why did they do that? To distinguish themselves from Christians because Christians use the Greek translation of the Old Testament primarily, so the Jews only canonized the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. To con- And that's when the split like is done. So it takes place between 70 and 90 A.D. But it starts because Christians don't get involved in the war. And Mark uses language from the book of Daniel, language that originally referred to the Maccabean Revolt, which we talked about l- last week, to Paint what happened to the temple as a messian- as a- as a revel- an apocalyptic moment. The temple's destruction is important And we got to be ready because Jesus is coming back soon and that's what it means But this whole section is understood not to be something that comes from Jesus himself But a commentary by the writers of Mark on what happened with the temple Any questions comments thoughts? It's a lot of information it's just, there's just so much. I mean, you can take this section, you can take this section of the, of the book, go to the Bible, and you could teach a six-week course on just those sections of Mark. And in fact, that's the way it worked when I was at Iona school. I, you know, that section of Mark was a month of work. Any questions, comments, thoughts, anything that y'all want to know? Uh-huh. Right. That's what it's called. Little Apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah. An apocalypse means an unveiling, and so you can see the real things of God. And so, what is the temple unveiled? What does it mean? It really means that Jesus Christ is coming soon. That's what it really means. So Mark's, part of Mark's message in the the gospel is, get ready, don't lose faith. The destruction of the temple is not the destruction of our faith. Because our faith is in and through Jesus, and by the way, the destruction of the temple means that Jesus is coming back soon. So that's the reassurance that the Gospel of Mark gives to the communities who would have had the, have had the Gospel of Mark. Always remember, get this around your head, whenever you're reading the Gospels too, whenever we're in church, remember that when they're written, nobody has all four Gospels. It's not like every community has all four gospels. Most of the gospels belong to certain communities, so there are Christian communities that have only the Gospel of Mark. Guess what? If you only have the Gospel of Mark, you know nothing about the virgin birth. It's not there to know about. There are Johannine communities. all they have is the Gospel of John. That's what they have. It takes about you know 50 to 100 years before all four gospels are used regularly in every church, in every community, when we call you see? So this is, the, this is the Jesus as the community of Mark understood Jesus to be. And it deals with specific issues. And the main issue it deals with is, what do we do now that the temple is destroyed? We, we're Jews. The temple's important. Part of Mark's answer is, the temple's not that important. Jesus is way more important. It's it's he's emphasizing the jesus-centric nature of that movement Which is why the two forms of judaism that survive are the are the pharisees which become rabbinical judaism because they believe in the book And the jesus believing the jesus followers the people of the way the nazarene movement, which becomes christianity Because they were able to focus on jesus the destruction of the temple did not mean the destruction of their faith The sadducees who only had the temple are are wiped out their faith doesn't exist anymore because there is no temple for them to turn to. Any other questions? Comments? Thoughts? Okay. Well, sorry you had to be subjected with, to me for two weeks. Mike will be back next week.